0: My guest today is Ben Folds, widely regarded as one of the major music influences of our generation. He's created an enormous body of genre-bending music that includes pop albums with Ben Folds Five, solo albums, so many collaborative albums, starting as a drummer and then a piano player and eventually a singer and a band member. For over a decade now, he has performed with some of the world's greatest symphony orchestras as well and currently serves as the first ever artistic advisor to the National Symphony Orchestra at the Kennedy Center. And in addition to solo rock and orchestral touring and scoring and getting involved in cinema and TV now, Folds also branched into the writing world with a new book, A Dream About Lightning Bugs, that debuted as a New York Times bestseller, dropping you into sort of the pivotal moments and stories that have shaped his fiercely engaged life of nonconformity, and perpetual creation and collaboration and reinvention. You might also recognize him as a judge for five seasons on NBC's The Sing-Off. And Ben is also an outspoken champion for arts education and music therapy funding in our nation's public schools. And we dive into all of this in today's conversation. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. With some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting-edge science and hard-won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10%.com/slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N, P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it well then check out the 10 Percent happier podcast either way you can find it all at 10.com good life let's take a bit of a step back in time and tell a little bit of the story that's brought you in and out of here and then kind of circle around to what you're up to these days also grew up in north carolina that's correct uh, greensboro Greensboro was in Salem, actually. I was born in Greensboro, and then okay. we moved when I was four. Yeah. Music touches down for you at a really young age, but but it seems like actually before you were ever playing it, you were just listening. And it sounds like even from the, the earliest stages, kind of a nonstop on repeat and, and a huge number of hours.
1: Yeah. I mean, my, my mother is dead certain that it was at least eight hours a day huh. when I was two years old. That's a lot. Um, I mean, it, it, on one hand, it shows somewhat of an obsessive streak that's, uh, you know, been part of my life. And on the other side, I think it's interesting for how much musical information and associative memories you can cram into a, a two-year-old's head, and I feel I benefited from that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I know parents now will start to play certain music to their kids you know, mm-hmm. in utero. Yeah, right. trying to sort of like you know figure out is this going to in some way affect them um, or do something to their brain mm-hmm. um, I have friends who've just done it because they really want their kids to love classic rock
1: <laughs> right yeah yeah I mean I don't know we we all, we all suspect that the stuff that the parents play the kids is probably gonna have the opposite <laughs> effect for some right. time you know but yeah I mean I, I like exposure to music uh, early, Seems to be pretty, pretty good for a brain.
0: Yeah, I mean, which is all. I mean, it's it's interesting also to talk about that at this moment in time when you look at a lot of education and like what's one of the first thing that gets stripped out of, especially a lot of public school education, especially yes. in areas where you know, the school district is challenged financially. It's like music. That goes.
1: is precisely where it happens, and 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 it and it affects the kids that need it the most. Same old story. Music education. If you if you look at a graph, there there are really pretty, uh, pretty efficiently drawn graphs in order to to understand these things. And if 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 you look at it from the time I was a kid, it it does decline slightly overall, but not that much. But where it's really declining is in poor neighborhoods, mm. and um, that's a damn shame because those are the neighborhoods where the dropout rates could be really quickly affected you know, positively by music. That's been shown. If you put a little bit of arts, a little bit of music in yeah. the uh, in the curriculum, your dropout rate goes down. Every, my experience is as I travel around the country, we do these little things called a master class, not really a master class, but uh it's just sometimes they they turn into a little town hall if if anything. You know, it's like master class QA really is what they are. Uh often bringing a, a public school music teacher in mm. to uh uh to talk as well. Yeah, this is for fans people coming to my shows and um I've just found just the wildest swinging variety of communities some of them the music programs are better than we've ever seen a music program even in a public school and some of them are absolutely nothing uh at all you have like on one hand you'll have one county where uh you know you might have some kid essentially 20 year old, New music teacher, straight out of college, and they're driving a hatchback around with broken instruments to all of the schools, just trying to get something going. And on the other hand, especially you know, if 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 if, it's, if the place can afford it, then you've got the opposite. You've got a state of the art music curriculum with singing, two orchestras, all kinds of stuff. So it's 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 the disparity that bothers me.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's so bizarre to me also. I, I get their budget constraints, but at the same time, if people are trying to figure out like, what are the things we keep and what are the things we jettison? It's like, even if you want to get scientific, there's clear research, which shows yes. how important music is to you know psychological and emotional development, to academic performance even. And that's the thing that gets pulled out.
1: Well, people... In, um that's 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 why it's really good thing for us to hang on to facts here in this era because the the data is pretty clear. It's good for test scores. It's good for well-being. It's good for dropout rates, and it's good for making well-rounded, happy humans. You know, but the incentive uh, is for administrators and principals and anyone involved uh, in the school when they see the test scores going down, panic kicks in. That's the best I can tell. Panic kicks in and they go, okay, the music's already costing a couple bucks. We're cutting that out. We're going to stick their head in the books for another 15 minutes a day and hope to Christ that we keep our, our jobs. And, uh, I just think that's what people do when, when we panic, we, we, we jettison the facts, and we jettison the data and the experience, and, and there's no steady hand on it. Also, you can't really account for the social divide that causes people to double down on things that they haven't considered just because they're on the other side of an issue. And so we have to watch the way we preach these things. It needs to remain nonpartisan because anything that becomes partisan suddenly is not subject anymore to uh, to reason. And this so far, you know, I think that all citizens on either side of the political divide want their kids to have music and arts in their education. They just differ on who's going to pay for it. And honestly, it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. That's something that, that, that some of my friends more on the left will be quick to tell me to hush about like don't tell them it doesn't cost any money they won't give anything but the truth is if you really want these kids to have some music they can sing they can slap their knees and dance they can do things that are inherently musical they can listen to music and talk about it i prefer we had instruments and they they worked and you had a teacher that was you know uh, uh, able to direct a band that's better but if it's not going to happen in this moment, I would prefer to see the next four, or eight years of kids not go through a system with no music and no art at all, just because we couldn't get them the instruments. You know, I sat on the floor when I was a kid because we had an experimental school. It wasn't that we were poor, but we sat on the floor, and every thirty minutes we did a music exercise, then went back to uh, back oh, no to kidding. studying. It was okay. like it was, and they would draw it on the staff on the on on the chalkboard. Uh, it was a little staff uh, of uh, music staff permanently on the chalkboard, and they would draw in. Today it's ta ti ti ta ta ti ti ta, and we clap. We might sing a song, and then
0: we just go back go back to to work. And I, I have to think that that was really good for me. Yeah, that's so interesting. Just kind of dripping it in here and there, and little micro moments almost.
1: Yeah. If if a, if the teachers, if in order to teach school, you have to know a little music, good for the teachers, and then the kids or in a class it may be a history class or just a general education class and they take a break. You know, it's the same thing with with just going out to play in physical education if nothing else. The taking the break has to mean something and yeah. that it's music or that it's art is even
0: better for them. Yeah, I mean and and not even getting to the fact that this is a really powerful form of expression for Whatever is going on inside your head at at any age, let alone a kid, especially going through angsty years. And it's like, okay, so I can express this in a lot of different ways, some constructive and creative and some destructive and harmful. Oh, that is an excellent
1: argument and point for music and art in education young is that music and all forms of art are expression and they're communication. And if a kid doesn't yet have a 700-word vocabulary, certainly they're expressing themselves in an artistic way. And in fact, I more and more believe that music, maybe the way that we teach it, should be adjust it a little bit to take into account that it is expression that everyone can do it Mm. because we tend to start copying music first. Copying is great for, for technique for someone who's going to get really good at it and it's necessary. But right off the bat, it might be worth pointing out to kids that they hear music all day long in the car horns and, and, and someone dragging a trash can down the alley. You hear it speeding up, slowing down. Then when someone gets angry, they speak quicker and higher and they yell To go into all those things as music and say, what's your song today? And the kid might go, I want to go home. Boom. We got a song. Suddenly, it's expression and story, which is really the way our brain is wired.
0: Yeah. So it's almost more about musicality than sort of like classically defined music.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that music as an art form is hijacking what three quarters of our brain uses anyway in Mm. order to tell us a story about the days that we can survive. You know, uh, certainly people evolved. There's a reason that the brain lights up when exposed to music in a way that it doesn't when exposed to anything else, including speech. There's it, uh, it only a small part of the brain that, that that lights up to create the thought, to express the thought verbally, and then to listen. But when it comes to music, it just, you just almost can't keep track of it. It just, it's a Christmas tree, as a friend of mine who's a, a neurologist likes hmm. to say about what happens. So your brain lights up like a Christmas tree. So I feel like music is hijacking that evolution of our brain in order to enjoy it, in order to tell a story on a higher artistic level. But that doesn't mean that children should expect to achieve that unless they are. Meant to do that. Otherwise, they should enjoy music for all the reasons that that music was was intended, and they don't have to become uh, a professional. So, you know, teaching them music technique before you teach them that it's expression. I'm not so sure. I know a lot of professionals who still haven't figured out that it's that it's expression, and I mm. think that their best performances are oddly then when they're. Off their game or upset or distracted because
0: they start to emote in a way rather than fixate on the technique. Yeah. I mean, and and you can even, I I think, carry that forward to sort of like today, where if you look at the industry and so much recording is done, you know, like on the Pro Tools grid and auto tune, and it's like everything is not about just let out what you need to let out and the way it needs to be let out, but how do we make this as technically perfect? As possible, how does everybody fall into the exact same formula and the exact same grid, so that we can come as close to possible as believing we've got something that's commercially viable? And it's like, it flows through from you know being taught from the youngest kid to what's happening in the industry today. Was sort of it's like is rejecting the humanity side of it. Yeah,
1: I mean it's you know you give people a chance and they and we will conform to fit in to survive and. When you give people a, a, a every tool uh, at our disposal in order to Sound achieve perfect, that of right? course yeah. we're gonna do it further, I think that that the uh, that the menus lower the creative resolution incredibly uh your your creative resolution personally uh, is we don't know how much you can. Imagine it could be anything. The, the issue becomes solving the problem. So, if I thought, Well, I'd like to just jump into the air and fly to Mars, well, I can imagine that that's incredible creative resolution. Can I solve that problem to get there? Probably not by myself, but when you start to get the solutions before you have the imagination of what you're going to do. So, if someone says, Here's five plugins and five grids and things that you could put your music on first, you haven't yet decided that you're going to fly to Mars. First of all, you need to think of you, you need to allow your imagination to lead the way and then use those tools in the form of of a grid or whatever, hijack those, make those your bitch, as it were. And and make the music out of it but the more tools we get with menus and the more that menu stuff happens then it's no it's no surprise i mean your hands look pretty much like most people's hands so if i sit down at the piano and play the first three chords that come to mind and i decide to write a song around that then i'm allowing the piano to uh, to kind of uh dither my my creative resolution uh, and so it's it's not just menus, it's also an instrument. If you sat down with a guitar, you'll hit the first few bar chords or something that's easy for you. So I, I think that also is a is a problem, that, that our
0: tools now are so menu-based that the resolution of creativity is way too low. Yeah, it's like it's constraining what we're even willing to explore as the realm of possibility. Yeah, why would you explore yeah. if, if, the, you the, if the computer is yeah. going to suggest or prompt you? Uh, it's interesting. Um, a couple of years back, I had a conversation with uh, – A guy named Milton Glaser, who's this iconic designer, who's in his 90s now, Um, he created the iHeartNY logo, co-founded New York magazines, done all this incredible stuff. Still works in his studio. Um, And you go into his studio, and he's got people who work in the studio. They have computers. He doesn't touch them. And I asked him about it. And it was almost the identical thing that he said to me. He's like, I don't want my creativity constrained by what I might feel this particular tool can give me. He's like, first, I want to come up with the idea. Maybe it can actually be actualized or not, but first let me come up with the idea and then go back to the tools.
1: That's so important. It's important creatively to imagine something, whether or not it's yet possible to actualize it that's what creativity is. And and if you don't sort of dream big with your ideas, if you allow, first of all, say, okay, now where are the four walls? First of all, uh, then you're like, okay, well, I'm out. Your ideas will be cut down to size. Don't worry about that. Like no matter what it is, like it will be. And, and uh, an old engineer, uh, uh, who one of the greats from a long gone era now what he misses about making records is the problem solving mm. because they would come in with an idea of what the record could be and they had to just figure it out the technology was new every day so like well we've only got eight tracks and you have a you have an idea that uh, is going to be beyond that so we'll put four people in one room and we'll you know do what we what we can to make it happen now it's sort of like the idea is the sky is the limit inside the computer, and it tells you what
0: the limit is. It's like here's the sky, and the sky is suspiciously low. Yeah, let's talk about I think um, a related but almost like the flip side of that, which is when you have, especially in the early days, as as somebody who is sort of like trying to channel this thing, you hear or you see or you feel this thing in your head. You know what you want it to sound like. You know what you want it to look like but you don't yet have command over the craft, the tools, whatever right. it may be, to actually get it out in the world and yeah. look and sound and feel that way. Um, that as, as an artist, and, and I'm thinking about, you know, like in, in the context of, of you, for example, you get exposed to piano really young and, and then to drums also and become, take that sort of like semi-obsessive devotion and say, I'm all in on this. Yeah. Did you all reach a point where your brain is starting to come up with all sorts of things well, but you I couldn't was, actually get them out. Yeah. Well, I mean, that
1: was, you know, I started playing piano when I was nine. But at least three years before that, I was walking around with music in my head and just daydreaming it all the time. And, and, and I suspect that I was hearing performances that were probably synthesized, misunderstood what I'd heard before. I was probably hearing flutes that extended down into the bass range. I might have been hearing, uh, you know, singers that were singing in a range that's not humanly possible and instruments that morphed into other instruments. The idea was that it was creating an emotional effect that was making me happy. It was either exhilarating or hypnotizing something about it. And as I started to learn to play various instruments, my frustration was finding that, solving that problem of getting the things that were I was waking up with in my head. I think what that's taught me as a concept, even before I had time to really not this out too much, was that it was a lot of bored time, a lot of time focusing on what was possible in my imagination. And that translates now to a lesson which is essentially sit on your hands for a while don't jump straight to the tools. Take that time that I got between the time of being six years old and nine years old, like today, travel to the city on train, realize as soon as I got on the train that I left my computer and all my notes to something I'm composing. So I find a notebook, I borrow a pencil and I just sat there on the train and I imagined all the various you know passages that I need to work on today. I described them. I listened to them in my head. And when I got off the train, I felt a lot better than I would have had I jumped to the computer. The computer is important. Yeah. But I needed to have waited. So luckily, I left my bag. Hopefully not outside. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's i like, just
1: don't know i don't have my bag with me it's gone. somebody's
0: walking around with benfold's computer and the notes for the next great piece so uh, yep hopefully not um I hope not. do you did you have a sense when you when you when you finished that work on the train was there any sense that maybe this is actually interesting or different or better than what i had originally had had i just opened the computer and continued to iterate on that
1: you know, it's hard to know. There's a, there's just such a time for everything. Yeah. When you start throwing stuff up against the canvas, you can't expect to remember every stroke as you as you did it. So if someone asks you what you just did, sometimes, I, at least for me, I back up from that music the way someone might back up from a canvas. Little mystery involved. Like I'm not sure exactly what the order of this was. And where my head was at when I did that. So it is important to almost have that canvas or the computer or a recorder taking the notes and sort of, you know, memorializing it as it goes along. There comes that time. But before that, and maybe between those periods, equally as important is the time where you're just imagining. I wouldn't want to tell someone that you know they need to imagine more than they realize or more than they memorialize or or score or whatever but do it some you right. know and it's like and i was heading towards not doing it enough i feel like if mm-hmm. i hadn't left my stuff at home i wouldn't have had today to do some really important thinking about some transitions just to sit as if i was listening to the record or sitting in an audience and feeling what it really felt like i was becoming so impatient about playing with these bits and micro bits of ideas, it probably was time for me to slow down. But I think most of us don't
0: take the time to sit on our hands anymore. And uh, so it was forced today. Yeah. I mean, you just brought up another interesting thing, which is um, the idea of the part of the process, which is about you getting out of your head what needs to be gotten out. Mm -hmm. And the part of the process, which is, a curiosity about, and maybe an intention wrapped around. How is this going to land with people who would be in the audience? Like, yeah. is this when you're working on something? Do you strip out that last part um, in the early days? Uh, do you? Is that a factor in your process? The at last all?
1: part being how people how receive it's it land? Yeah. Well, you can't control how people feel about things and react to things. I think you know. Uh, the thing, the, the only external issues I think of are, I consider anything that that I may be doing in what I'm creating that might be causing anyone to fold their arms, because the, the folding of the arms certainly covers the heart, and you're not going to open yourself up to a piece of music if, if you have a piece of music and it quotes something does something abruptly, and you know it's it's manipulated someone in a way that they 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 don't open themselves up. It's kind of hard to explain what that might be. I mean, in a song, it might just sim- simply be just saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. That's not to say that I, I I sanitize things or cater. I just want to make sure that if if you're on my planet or genetic same genetic whatever brain footprint, if we're all in the same thing, you're gonna like what I make. I want that person to have the chance to hear it, and it's real easy to make something in a way that doesn't invite somebody in. That's the only issue. As far as the center of what I make, if someone agrees with it, responds to it, I can't help it if that's negative or positive. So I put myself in the audience, mostly, uh, and I do have that moment where I go, okay, have I screamed in someone's face, have I been too needy up front? Have I not taken my time? So you can create a piece of music that you can't get into. And that's what intros are for. And like especially the the you know, the classical music of the 19th century, you know, it gives you a lot of time to get there. Yeah. And uh there and, and now people are like, I don't have time. So so now the issue is if you could boil it down to da-da-da-da, and just be there, you know, but Back in the day, the way to unfold the arms was to like, like you would with a, with a, with a dog, you know, like you don't go straight for the dog and go, yo, what's up, strange dog? Like you put your hand down, you sit, you're humble, let them come to you. That's the way music used to be. Now it's a little bit more like, okay, what's your elevator pitch, yo? That's okay.
0: Yeah. This episode is supported by ThreadUp. So fun fact, if everyone in the U.S. bought just one used item instead of new in 2020, it would save nearly 6 billion pounds of carbon emissions. It's like taking half a million cars off the road for a year. There's a ton of waste in the fashion industry. So as I turn the page on a new year, we've kind of been looking for new ways to add sustainable shopping into our mix. And part of that is by thrifting and ThreadUp makes that really easy. So. ThreadUp is the world's largest online thrift store with up to 90% off estimated retail. You get the amazing deals of thrifting with the convenience of online shopping from all of your favorite brands. Grab Nike for six dollars, Lululemon for twenty-seven, J. Crew for ten dollars, and so much more. And today you can get 30% off your first order at ThreadUp.com/goodlife. Just search on ThreadUp by size, style, budget. Find the best deals instantly, and everything is in high quality condition. Lots of items even still have their tags on. My wife, Stephanie, actually recently got a black sundress from J.Crew, a Kate Spade clutch, some denim shorts from Madewell, this kind of flowy long sleeve top from Free People, and a great fleece from North Face. And many of her favorite brands are in there and everything is like new condition. Sustainable, stylish, totally affordable. You'll look and feel even better in 2020 with Up. And for Good Life Project listeners, here's an exclusive offer. Get an extra 30% off your first order at threadup.com slash goodlife. That's T-H-R-E-D-U-P.com slash goodlife for 30% off your first order. threadup.com slash goodlife for 30% off today, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms apply. I was listening to somebody um, describing how they literally will, they'll write and record differently for something they know is going to be streamed on one of the major Mm -hmm. platforms versus played on the radio versus played live. Because they know, like, on a streaming platform, they've got, what, like, three seconds to grab somebody. So that becomes the major thing. And then, like, okay, so let me feed them what I want. But it has to hit hard and fast immediately and and hook them so they don't flip away to the next thing. Whereas, you know, radio, you would have had a little bit more time by the time somebody's in a live audience that kind of they're with you already. So you can kind of, like, ease it out even yeah. more gently. But yeah, it is interesting how I feel like the creative process is changing based on not just people's attention spans, but on the platforms that were consuming totally. creative output.
1: But it always has. I mean, yeah. like r- right when when uh, 33 RPM came in, suddenly we could have a long play record. Uh, one of the first records, maybe the first record made for the medium was, uh, was by Duke Ellington. And he was like, wow, I've got all this space. So he makes the first jazz music that's really jazz music for that medium, and it takes its time to open up, and it goes back to another. You know, the, no longer does he have to get this out on a seventy-eight where he's got two and a half minutes, right. and I, I I think that that what you do then as an artist is remember again that music is communication. So yes, it's about your idea, and the preciousness of your idea is always invited, uh, is is always welcome, but. If you've really got an idea and someone allows you two seconds to tell people, yeah, you're going to try to communicate. You should try. If you've got five minutes to do it or two seconds or an hour, you should try to fit it to that because what you're trying to do is communicate something. If you know that you can't just open a window and blurt it out, then you might might, say, uncle, immediately wave a flag and not try it. But I don't have, I don't, I'm not so precious that I wouldn't, like I realized every time they made me cut down a song for a a, a pop music edit back in the 90s, which my band was making records, which we had to do that constantly. My first instinct was, I'm an artist, do not cut my, everything I ever cut, I like it better 20 years later. So, interesting. you know, like yeah. like I, I try not to be too precious about those things. People are like, Jesus, it all has to be like snack bite and stuff. It's so like, well, I mean, it could be good for that. Maybe it's good for that. We don't know. You just have to you have to make it for the medium and do, do what you feel like it's right. But remember, it's communication. If you can communicate it in two syllables,
0: do it. Yeah. Um, brevity. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting also, as you're saying that, I'm, I'm thinking about what's happening in the podcasting world as well, which is there's a really interesting trend um, to go long form. Mm -hmm. Again, And, you know, like we go for about an hour, but there are plenty of podcasts out there that will go for multiple hours right now. And they have massive global devoted audiences. So it's almost like there's something happening where it's like there are these two things happening simultaneously where, you know, people want certain things really fast and instant. But they also want to luxuriate in something longer and deeper, and sort of like yeah. melodious and flowing, and and with more flowing. texture.
1: Yeah, they don't. Yeah, we don't get as much flow more than likely with all the short form stuff. But then people are we recompartmentalize. So now someone might be sitting in their car every day for literally three hours right. to go to and from work. So this gives them some sense of, of sanity to to hear something come and go. I mean. I'm glad the podcasts are going longer. I, I hope that means that people are are like bothering to listen to half of
0: Mozart's piano concertos. You know, we'll see. Um, jump a little bit back back into uh, your path. You came out of high school pretty accomplished, and I'm going to use those words whether you, it or not, piano mm-hmm. and drums. Um, struggling with school itself, yeah. but um, end up applying to University of Miami. Part of that application process is. Uh, pre- performing jazz standards yeah. which you didn't have, so you actually created and recorded your own.
1: <laughs> That's right. I didn't know jazz standards, and I, and I actually felt pretty uh, uh, pretty insecure about that. So I fought that by writing my own. <laughs> and do you think it was that that actually landed yeah. you in that school? It was that, and that I played all the instruments to do it. Right. It just you know years later, and my uh, percussion professor still remembers that tape. And he was like, "Yeah, I remember that. We got this in the mail. It's like you played all the instruments. You wrote the stuff yourself. That's yeah, I still remember. It. I think I got the tape. That's amazing.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, it, it was unusual. I, I don't think I would have understood that it was unusual. I was doing what I thought was necessary to uh, uh, to get. I mean, I was ashamed that I didn't know anyone else that played jazz. So I was ashamed I didn't know someone that could play. Because when 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 a, when a, you know an application asks you to do something, you really want." To do it the right way so i was like oh, well this is uh kind of uh, warmed over pizza here i'm just gonna have to do it you know the, the way that i know how to do it and that
0: got me in yeah you end up there um you're there for a relatively short time after the first semester they have these things called juries where yeah. you have to basically step up and play the night before <laughs> yeah bit of personal drama which yeah. ends you uh in a hospital with a broken hand and you got to show up the next day and yeah. play and your scholarship which is keeping you there depends on totally. how you play so you play right um not well yeah
1: <laughs> dropping the stick hadn't slept all night hung over you know I, was, I did what what you expect of an idiot teenage boy i i did exactly that and i lost the scholarship which was um. Yeah, it was.
0: Yeah, that just destroyed me. <laughs> I was so bummed. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so you end up back home. Yeah. Um, working around locally, playing around locally a bit. But Then you also you you make the decision. You're like, you know what? I got to take another shot at at school at, yep. at education. So you end up um, back at it was UNC uh, Greensboro, Greensboro mm-hmm. right? And it sounds like there was this chance moment. Where a sub comes in, yeah. in a piano class that you shouldn't have been in in the first place because it was so basic, right? And it's like that sliding doors thing. This guy randomly drops into your life and and yeah, becomes this incredible person. Made
1: a big difference. Yeah, I was a substitute teacher and like you said, a class I shouldn't have been in. It's called class piano. Uh, if you've never touched a keyboard before and don't know where middle C is, that is your class. So the reason I was in that class was because I was probably ashamed to uh, uh, take the placement test because I, I was a relatively decent piano player who couldn't read very well. And it was that it was that uh, not being able to read that I thought was particularly, uh, I was ashamed of. So I just ended up in this class and I was goofing off. And the regular teacher had not caught me at goofing off. He wasn't able to see who's the person playing like Dave Brubeck licks around the class because we're all on a separate piano. And, uh, and we were attached by headphones, so it didn't give you any sense of, of who was where. Some old dude, substitute teacher, I screwed with him the entire time, and he asked me to come to his office, so I thought I was in trouble. And he kind of gave me a little bit of a, an odd test about my ear and uh, reharmonizing songs and had a little talk with me, and then at the end of it, he said, I'd like to give you a piano scholarship if you'll switch from percussion. And, and, and that was you know I didn't I didn't remain as a piano student after he left. what I did get was proper mentorship, a proper teacher giving me his complete attention the way the best you know family doctor might. If I'm bummed one day, let's talk about that and how it affects music. Uh, uh, he had had a nervous breakdown when he was younger. He was a promising West Coast composer. When he was a kid, he'd met uh, Aaron Copeland. He had taken a boat across to Europe to study with Madame Boulanger. He was very promising. And then he had a nervous breakdown and and this affected his life a lot. And he saw myself or saw him and myself in me. And, uh, and, and, you know, whether or not I was going to have a nervous breakdown, I don't think so. But he may have averted a lot of things for me. He was a proper mentor. I don't think that's something that Many musicians I know have had the uh, have have had is that kind of mentorship. It's not normally afforded at a at a at a college, and he just did this.
0: Yeah. Do you have a sense that it had he not dropped in had that one had he not subbed in that one class, your path would have been very different.
1: Well, I think my path. I mean, that's that's hard to know. I yeah. mean, my path. I think any you know it's consistency. Not that you followed a
0: straight line with a lot of stuff, but
1: I think that it's. I mean, we just don't know. That's such deep philosophy, there, yeah. you know. But I, I, I think that a uh, the straight path, the constant uh, intention, which means a lot of frustration, means a lot of failure, also means a lot of crazy luck. Like I got, has a lot to do with it. Maybe something else would have come along. I think sometimes we're looking for something we don't know, and then it happens. But I think the intention the will, and the wish to get there combined with the things that will happen. I mean, people have always tried to ask me to pinpoint, like in my professional career, what was your break? I didn't have a break. I had a break every day. And and I actually think that, that uh, the break with this teacher, Bob Darnell, was, you know, at least as important as my being signed to a label or getting a chart position or a rolling stone piece or anything at least is important, but I don't know. I mean, it's hard to know those things. I I think that that the problem with looking at the problem with not acknowledging them is to not be um, adequately um, uh, thankful for them and appreciative of those moments, but to depend on them is also a problem. So I think you just keep,
0: Keep plowing, you know. I, it's such an important point. You know, I, I have – I once went to a mentor of mine who basically told me to stop looking for mentors.
1: Right, right. <laughs> you know, because exactly. Like,
0: because then you're looking for the person who's going to show up. It's the guru problem, and, yeah. And give you the flag, like the go ahead and point yeah. you in a direction. It's like, that person may never come. You know, so look for champions. Look for people who are out there doing what you already seek to done, deconstruct it. Yeah. Just keep doing what you're doing, but don't, don't wait. Don't hold back in any way, shape, or form for like some magical being to drop into your path, which I think a lot of people do.
1: Yeah, I, I, I got good advice uh, via podcast, <laughs> and I can't remember who this was. His name was Tyler, and I can't remember he's. Uh, I don't even remember what he does anymore, but he was fascinating, and he, he said, you know, just get a mentor when you need him. He's like, I'm interested right now in uh, in Shakespeare, so I just called up someone as Shakespeare. I buy him dinner, and we meet for dinner once a week. And and uh, and I teach him a thing, and he teaches me a thing. Um, I think that's the mentorship. Like you say, you can't. You're not looking for a guru or someone to
0: be too much, but just their full attention is even as good as Google. Yeah, hundred percent. You end up during that same window of time spending some time there, but then after Darnell um, is gone, you also leave there Um, in this relatively short window of time, months and then a couple of years, you marry Anna, your childhood friend, Mm -hmm. touring around Europe, forming a band. Um, Things are relatively successful, but nothing's really, really catching. You come back and then have an opportunity to touch down, to jump over to Nashville. Yeah. Where you're kind of trying to figure out the scene there and you get a publishing deal. Sounds like fairly quickly there. But like... The bend that has been at that moment in time isn't quite working in Nashville.
1: No, it's 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 it was uh, it was constant frustration. You know, I mean, some of it the 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 youthful frustration of feeling I write really good songs. I turn on the radio, I don't hear really good songs. Why are my songs not on the radio? That's kind of where my head was at. Nothing was going to make me happy in that time, and I was always working really hard. I you know I I'd I'd worked. as a um, you know, as a, a cover band musician playing bass and uh, drums and, and piano, whatever I could get, and I realized that that was gonna, a slippery slope. So I decided not to do that anymore, and I would only accept payment for music that was inspired that I had written. That became a problem for a while because I then had collection agencies at the door, avoiding and and uh, heat turned off all the time, and and you know the the regular broke ass musician stuff, and that was my twenties was basically just one long decade of, of of
0: frustration. Yeah, you bounced from there then up to New York. Yeah, I, I guess technically the deal that you had in Nashville was picked up.
1: Yeah i was i was asked to do some stuff for other bands who were becoming successful who i felt at the time had copied me anyway and um if i would do that because they were published by the same people then i could keep writing my songs and they give me my stipends and stuff. And if I refuse to do that, then there's really nothing they can do for me anymore, which I think is very fair in retrospect. Like They need to make their money off me or or move on. But as it happens, the equal office in New York was full of fans and they were passing my cassette tapes around as if, I mean, to my surprise, as if it was music, which is crazy because I had come to view music as a demonstration tape as a portfolio, as a business card. And to hear that people were listening to my music in the car for enjoyment was recalibration and re-inspiration. It was like, this is why you make music? Because you got something to say, not because you need a gig. So I went up there and I softly pursued it. I was I was doing um, some theater, like musical theater jobs that I got. and only when something would come up would I – to go down and play my music. It was was at least 18 months kind of off of of music. I didn't know if I was going to keep playing it or not.
0: Yeah. You reach a point in New York where (laughs) sort of like a whole bunch of stuff comes to a head, like your feelings about music, your feelings about the industry, your feelings about New York, your marriage, which is struggling at the time because Anna isn't there with you. You guys have been apart for a while. And there's a moment where you're grappling with what do you do she gets a gig at MTV which is based in New York yeah. and she's literally driving up yeah and you're sitting you describe this you know like as sitting on a suitcase yeah. trying to figure out okay what's my next move here
1: yeah she went up and as soon as she came up to New York I went back down south <laughs> just circumstantially, I suddenly had an opportunity uh with a manager who believed in me and, and uh the the reenergized uh publishing thing I had in New York. And I was inspired. Everything I was hearing suddenly was like my people. I remember hearing a Liz Fair record and going, This is incredible. Like she's got just as much confidence in her vocals as I do in mine, which is to say none. And all of these uh you know, irony in lyrics, self-deprecating ironic lyrics, you know, it was the 90s thing. Uh that's the way I always written. So all of a sudden I felt like I was part of it. Anna's coming up to work at MTV and for us to try to make things work, we both know that it wasn't going to, but it pushed, it pushed me to go, if I don't leave now, I'll get stuck up here and probably, I don't know what, marriage counseling for another 18 months, two years, I'll work maybe at a pizza place or something like that my opportunity will come and go. No one will be better served by that. And I won't be happy. I won't be happy. Now's the moment. Go do it. And as it turns out, I was right. I mean, I got back down to, I went to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I'm from North Carolina, met these two guys that were in my band within a week of being down there. I think a week, two weeks, we started rehearsing, didn't know what it sounded like because we couldn't hear anything. Committed to that band. A year later, we were making our first record with a with a record deal. A year after that, and everything was happening.
0: Yeah. So those two guys end up becoming, along with you, um, Ben Folds Five. That's right. You get signed. You're working on a deal, but it, the first album doesn't go exactly the way as planned either. No, because not at all. You're like you have a very specific way of making music and and the studios and the engineers want to really clean it up and, yeah. and make it the way that it's quote supposed to sound so yeah. you produce this thing and then your rep comes and hears it and she cried because <laughs> it sucked
1: <laughs> uh, it was bad and you know to be to be fair to everyone who who who's like i mean this is a problem i don't think i'm particular. i'm good at producing certain records but not all of them. And people who can produce a record have to know so much. And that guy took all his knowledge of how you make a record—that was really good stuff. He taught me so much about record making, about every other record in the world except for the one that we happen to be making. You know, and uh, it just didn't work. He 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 got us to play in time. That's good. Like I don't like I feel bad. I hope, I hope Dave because I, I haven't seen Dave in years. Who ma- who made that record? I, I would want him to understand that I'm grateful for what I learned. And I feel he was probably the recipient of anything, any any bad, any like he was the one. He just, but that's what happens. A producer is like the buck kind of stops with them. And he got these three guys that were just the wrong thing to try to make right, you know. Now when I make a record, and that's and and even for our third record, the band's third record is called uh uh the, the unauthorized biography of reinhold messner a lot of people considered it our best record was made with all the things that dave taught us mm. we were ready to do that uh. by that time but at that point it
0: was the wrong thing to tell those young men yeah so you end up going back into the yeah. studio and basically in a matter of hours slash days yeah. redoing the whole thing yeah. your way and then when you people listen to that then it's like wow yeah, this all sorts of like there's buzz all over the industry there's yeah. buzz in the, the stations and you guys go out and it's like okay so ben folds five is actually a thing now you start touring you're on the road comes time for your your second album and that album is the one that I, that i feel like brings you into sort of like more mainstream especially because brick is on the second yeah, album, that's why yeah right um and it's, it's fascinating to me The song off of that album that kind of becomes the big breakout hit is actually about something that happens to you when you're 16 years old. You and that your then girlfriend. Everybody's singing the song. Everybody's playing the song, but nobody actually knows what the story is. Right. And
1: I didn't say. I mean, in in interviews, I I was not. I was not. I just didn't want to talk about it. You know. Uh, And that's hard. Uh, when when you've sold a million records over the course of six months or whatever, and it's on the base based on the strength of a single that you won't talk about, not that I was really pride heavily about it, but I just made sure I didn't I didn't talk about the song. It's not something I talk about. Yeah, and, and and I think the song was just muddied enough by a slightly disconnected from the story chorus. It's probably the only way that song could have worked. If you sang a song about a teenage abortion in any era, and the chorus were to reflect that and and appear to celebrate it, yeah, that's a good way to get everyone folding their arms. As it is, the feeling, I think, sunk in. People heard it and felt, I think they felt what my girlfriend and I felt when we were teenagers and this happened. I think the song got that across. But I think to try to take it literally and to analyze it, it's very difficult. It becomes increasingly so over the decades. I think because um,
0: just because of politics. Yeah, it's interesting too because I, I, the song was lyrically, it it threaded it, it threaded this really fascinating needle where it was lyrically precise enough to create a context for anyone listening right. to transfer their own circumstance into it. Their own moment of sorrow, of suffering, of struggle, and and, and ambiguous enough to allow that to happen, also. So that I think, I feel like, you know, like that that was part of the beauty beyond like the the melody and everything else that went into the actual music of it, lyrically, that was kind of genius to allow, like, create the space for people to step in and say, huh, I'm I'm feeling this feeling that maybe Ben and his then girlfriend felt, but I don't know that that's what I'm actually feeling. And I'm putting whatever I'm going through into it.
1: You know, that's the beauty of music and songs, is if you can sit down and explain to someone completely and know that that person is going to walk off from the bar where you had your talk, I don't know why you'd write the song. You know, you sit down and you'd you'd talk with your friend about it, and you would get that across. But there are things that fall between the cracks of our regular communication, and those can be stumbled upon when you write a song. And I say stumbled upon because the way the song came about was Darren, my drummer in that band, it's one third of Ben Fold's five. He had this chorus for a long time and he did not know what it meant. And it felt like something to me. It evoked something. And I was like, what is that evocative of? Oh, that kind of feels like 11th grade. And then as I just started to fill in the verses, the story, the whole thing felt right together. Now, if I just look at it on face value, like a lot of people have like kind of angrily before and said, you know what? She's a brick and she's weighing you down and now she's, you know, it's like, no, that's, I don't I even know if I ever thought about those words. It's just everyone sang it and, and it wasn't song like it carried emotion with it and I don't know why. And then the rest of it, I filled in with just exactly what happened 6 a.m. Day after Christmas, the exactly what happened, like a folk song. Like I always I always love these folk songs that are just like, boom, there's a story. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's something really powerful about that. You combine that with the poetic ambiguity of a hit song chorus,
0: and it's an interesting thing. You know, I I I think a lot of it's an accident. Yeah. Uh, interesting also. So Ben Fold's five is when you actually step up to the microphone, because up until this point. You write, you compose, yeah. you you play, you know, like all these different instruments, but you're always the guy who's like, nah, somebody else needs to sing. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's not, that's not me. Yeah. Yet at the same time, the people who are stepping up to the mic to sing your work aren't doing it the way you want. So you right. start to create demo tapes.
1: Well, I wanted singers that could sing, of course. I wanted people that, that were good at singing and I would just sing it to them on a cassette tape. And I was not particularly good at the things that you think you should be good at with singing, like you know, some soul riffs and some added stuff. And um, these guys were. And they'd sing it back, but it wasn't satisfying. And then I would hear the tapes, and I would be like, yeah, but the way that I did it is the right way. It didn't have any vibrato. It was just in tune enough, and it got through. And I guess after a while, I just started to realize, you know, this is probably... What I should do because it sounds more like the song, but it took a while. I mean, I was like looking for singers since I was 14 years old. You know, I didn't want to sing it myself. I'd find one guy that could sing at
0: school and I'd have him sing stuff, and it wasn't the right one. Yeah. First time you get up on stage, so you had toured a lot by then, playing the music, playing all the different instruments. First time you get up on stage and you're actually step up to the mic to sing, do you remember feeling any more nervous or anxious or? Um, when I've, it was actually you on the microphone. I was
1: so nervous every time that there was a time that I had to sing. And sometimes it would happen in cover band where they'd say, okay, let's see, it's a medley uh, Ben, but you sing Rawhide. Rolling, rolling, rolling. Oh, man, I'm, I'm so nervous. <laughs> I would get so incredibly nervous. It never wore off for me for television, even through my professional career, the same... Just debilitating nerves that were so much so that the the issue was, am I going to be sick in front of people? No confidence in that at all. Um,
0: yeah, it was rough. Yeah, I mean, so when the second album comes out and uh, and Brick hits big, you also end up on SNL, yeah, performing live, which in theory is this magical moment Huge. which launches people. It's a giant giant, especially back then. You yeah. know, like everybody watched. There weren't was a million different channels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't turn into the moment that you thought it would be. No, it was not good.
1: I mean, I even, I reviewed it as I was writing the book just to see if maybe my perspective was wrong. No, it was bad. But it was bad for very specific reasons at the end of the day. And again, it's kind of like, you know, a little mentorship, a little help. You know, you think about the Beatles and they had Brian Epstein there to be like, you're not dressed right, you're rushed, you're dragged. You know, we're gonna do that this way, and then George Martin is there the whole the whole way. Not many bands actually have that. In the 90s, you weren't supposed to prepare. So we dragged. It's simple as that. I was out of tune and was dragging. That's the simple fix of the thing. Underneath it, the way I was paddling ferociously to stay, to not pass out from nerves. Just miserable. And I thought I would channel that. By being doubling down on the melancholy of the song. That's not back to back to formats and medium. That's not the medium to to, to look like you're gonna die or, or or you're suicidal. That's not the medium. I mean, people would call. I mean, we had phone machines in that era, and I had voicemails on cassette. The next day I had like 10, 12 friends and family call up, say, Saw you on TV last night. Um, are you okay? That's awful. That so I thought we were done. Yeah. I thought I thought we'd we I say, I've come this far," and that moment ruined it all. No one moment ruins it all unless unless it's Twitter. <laughs> <laughs>
0: life project is supported by ZipRecruiter. So it's a new year. We're all making plans about how we want to grow, especially in business. It's kind of the perfect opportunity to take your business to the next level by hiring the right people. But finding qualified candidates can be seriously challenging. I know this personally. I've grown my own companies and helped a lot of other founders explore growing theirs. ZipRecruiter.com slash good makes it easy. So ZipRecruiter sends your job to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find the people with the right experience and then invite them to apply to your job. So as applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is actually so effective that 4 out of 5 employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address ziprecruiter.com/good. That's ziprecruiter.com/g o o d. ziprecruiter.com/good. ZipRecruiter the smartest way to hire, and remember, you can just click the link in the show notes now too. So that that doesn't ruin it all, no. But that that also sort of like starts the next. You continue to tour, you move into, you create the third album, like you said. What you feel is maybe sort of like the the best album, but it doesn't get the radio play that no, you no. need. It was a disaster. So when you go on tour, like the tour doesn't get the support that it needs. So yeah. so everything kind of goes south. Yeah. Um, Personally, you're struggling also. And the band comes apart, at least for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're kind of forced to grapple with, okay, so uh, who am I? Like, what is my voice and what is my future? But yeah. Both as a person and also as an artist. Like, what do I want this next season to look like and feel like? And that's a, the that's a thing. It's like, well, we assume
1: when you're younger, you look ahead at people who have, quote, made it. And you don't realize that all the problems that you're having at this moment – about identity. What do I sound like? What's my sound? Who am I? All those things. They'd come up over and over and over again. Just as soon as you think you've got you got the number, then, then you get thrown off and you have to figure it out again. And that was one of my moments. I mean, my instinct was, let me get a producer that does something that I'm very uncomfortable with. I didn't say it like that, but that's what it was. So I got a producer who made the slickest pop albums, the things that I was disgusted with. I couldn't name one album the man had made that I liked. And and that was that was kind of concerning for people around me. Like, you sure you want to use this guy? You don't actually like what he does. But my thing was, okay, look, I, I knew what my identity was then. Now I feel like maybe I ought to have no identity. Maybe I ought to just, my songs ought to just sound like everyone else's. And so Rock in the Suburbs was an attempt for me to let the guy use the computers like they were using now fix everything, make it drum machine if it needs to, say it in the language of Britney Spears of that moment and just let it go. And that was that was my theory. Uh, now the record to me just sounds like another one of my records.
0: <laughs> <laughs> With the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. I mean, but at the same time, um, you're sort of like in a new wave of personal stuff while yeah. this is all being recorded. Because... Um, Dating, then, then I guess your girlfriend, you're you learned you're going to be actually a dad. Yeah. This was during that same window, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, of twins. Yeah. Um, come the later part of that pregnancy, um, there's also a, a really big concern that she might actually lose the baby. Oh, so absolutely. Yeah. You're back in New York, I guess, or L.A. We were in New York finishing the Reinhold
1: Messner record. Okay. And, uh, you know things are moving pretty fast that yeah. time it's hard to delineate these things and it appeared that she was going to I mean the, the nurse just said over the phone well, you're losing them for sure. we just got to make sure that uh, that your wife's okay so just get to the hospital as soon as you can we'll we'll uh, the, 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 you can forget about the, uh, the the children and then they ended up being fine. but yeah uh, after that shortly after that the band broke up because the album didn't work out and we were tired of each other at that moment and I immediately launched in. To Rock in the Suburbs, which was recorded and written having just moved to the other side of the world to Adelaide, Australia. So, yeah, that's
0: basically the scene. Right. So, you're in this moment again where you're sort of everything is up in the air. You're, you're, you're a new dad, um, yep. again married, yep. trying to figure out like, what does my musical life look like from this moment forward? Now, yep. doing it on your own, um, you know, with the support of other people, but without the band anymore. And you do find your way, you know, like the personal stuff stays hard. That that relationship comes to an end. Now you're dad, so you've got kids. Um, musically, even though, you know, like we have not the benefit of hindsight now, we know like you found your way and you started doing all sorts of other things. You know, you got involved in all sorts of different projects, not just solo albums and solo touring. Yeah. You kind of went back to your roots to a certain extent. But then you went the complete opposite direction. You're doing like symphonic collaborations. You're yeah. doing really cool different stuff. Was there any window in that early sort of like, okay, what's happening here where you thought maybe this whole thing just isn't right for me?
1: Well, I thought it was, I assumed it was all over upon waking every day. And um, if I had the opportunity to do something before before access was cut off, I was going to do it. Uh, I didn't assume that, that it was going to last. I thought coming from the 90s, married dude with kids is not cool. Being solo is not cool. Playing piano is not cool. I'm cooked. I, at 33 years old, had my midlife crisis because I saw my life is over. And when you see that a half or more of your life is over – you re-evaluate and the trauma of re-evaluating has you doing a lot of very selfish things. And, and, uh, one of the selfish things was just not getting sleep. Like I didn't sleep that selfish. (laughs) I did everything. Like I made so many EPs and records and the orchestra stuff you're talking about solo, solo, uh, things where I go out and play piano, 12 shows in row one night off. Twelve shows in a row, sometimes two in a day. Drove the van and everything just to
0: fit more stuff in. Crazy. Yeah. Eventually, though, that it feels like that both brings you to your knees, um, to sort of like windows. <laughs> sounds like multiple windows of reckoning. Yeah. Um, but also brings you back to yourself eventually. And here's the thing: like we love, and I mentioned this in the book.
1: We we all loved who, whoever has seen this. Uh, uh, Behind the Music by VH1. We love to see the trajectory of someone doing this exact thing, which is being tested, being confused, forest for trees, alone in the dark, go to your knees, rise up from it. All these things happen to every person on the planet. And As an artist, you find yourself being seen more. You know, and therefore, your life can become symbolic for what other people who you don't know uh, are and I like to mention that because these patterns in our life and the one that you're describing that I had is what we all experience. And that for me probably happened younger uh, because uh, as a rock musician, you're basically like a you're like a, a, a an athlete or a dancer. you know your, your career's done. You're done. You're 35 years old. You are baked. We're not. There's. no looks statistically, it's true. But it's freeing to feel that you've lost everything. And any kind of bottom, I hit things that were bottom for me. For some people, they wouldn't have gone that far. For some people, they would have gone further. Maybe they would have become addicted to drugs, or they would have gotten sick, or something else. But I did all those things, which I'm thankful for. I want people to know about them in the book, but I don't want them to feel special because they're not unique,
0: you know. Yeah, we do love a redemption story.
1: We do, but we all do it.
0: Yeah, no, I think who has
1: not done that,
0: right? Yeah. And and, I, and it's just a matter of like how how the circumstances differ. And yeah, sort
1: of- and I love talking about, it and I love hearing other people's. And and every song and movie that does that for me is reaffirming because
0: it's like, okay, I'm not doing it wrong.
1: Yeah, you know. <laughs>
0: Um, as we sit here today having this conversation, um, you're at a point where it seems like you have sort of pieced together a whole bunch of things that are giving you what you need, like collaborations, forms of expression, like creative opportunities and possibilities that are – it it seems like you've kind of like figured out, okay, so this is a place that feels good to me for this moment of mm-hmm. my life. It's interesting, um, we had Liz Fair on the podcast recently also, and she, we're all similar age, and she's sure. sort of like stepping back into – this space of creativity and touring again. She got a new album out. And um uh, literally just last week I saw Dylan at the beacon. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, and I and I just looking at it, I'm like, okay, if he can do this, <laughs> like there's there's no end to sort of like how long you can keep kind of rolling. This He's way. been the beacon for so many things.
1: Bob Dylan has done so many things really it so that we don't have to do them. Uh, you know, like just going electric. I was I was describing to, to, to an audience at the Kennedy Center, a, a show that I run for the National Symphony Orchestra, and you've got people who are there for pop music and you've got people there at our concerts that are for classical music. And the divide is quite a cultural divide. And so I'm explaining to them, here's our problem. Pop music is in, essentially folk music. And in the 20th century, folk music went electric. And when folk music went electric, it made it very difficult pragmatically speaking to make it work with the symphony orchestra. Cause the symphony orchestra is essentially right. a 19th century, uh, uh, well-oiled machine that doesn't do that. And then immediately Bob Dylan comes to mind. I'm like, he's, he did that. Like, you know, like he was always, he, he, he was, he was in all these, like even being booed, like that, that whole era of him being booed is incredible for a musician. I find that so inspiring to watch footage of him getting in the car time and time again with like the band with robert robertson and he's like they're still booing me they're still booing and he kept doing what he believed thank you bob i mean even if i didn't like his music i would be so and i saw him playing about five years ago i i was standing on side stage watching from behind as he played piano (laughs) he has no idea what he's doing and it's amazing and he was so happy like he just looked so happy about it he he'd start playing some really irresponsible synthetic uh uh diatonic mode out of nowhere changing the keys and the band would just go oh oh okay we're gonna we're gonna discover this with you bob and you just hear them all shifting
0: and morphing around till they just and then everyone was happy i love that guy yeah, no, it was, it was amazing. And look, it was a packed house. Yeah. People were bopping and shaking their heads. It was everyone from like nine year olds to people, you know, like with walkers in their like late 70s and, and 80s. I was like, you know what? So great. Keep bringing it. Um, You tell a story, which is sort of like the opening of your book, and we'll, we'll come full circle here about um, really, and it's about Fireflies, but what it is is fundamentally, it, it is about finding the thing that is luminous to you as an right. individual and then sharing it with others. And and it sounds like that you have kind of come to this place where you're realizing like, that's kind of what it's always been about for you.
1: That I think is what an artist does, which is you see something that is not the thing that everyone else sees because everyone else sees a different thing. In my dream, I was a two-year-old who was identifying Fireflies, lightning bugs, when no one else was paying attention, I bottled them and made them happy. Now, if I think back on that dream, some of those kids might have been, you know, looking at stars instead. That's not more or less important than the fireflies. One might have been looking at the blades of grass or looking at traffic or the parents. All kinds of things were happening with all those kids. It's not to say that hey, I'm a genius. I'm the only one who saw the fireflies. That so everyone sees a different thing. The artist is the one that learns the technique above all reason, takes all the time tearing the hair out to bottle it right without killing it and then passing it to others. Because when something lights up in the sky like that, the inspiration is so fast. You don't get to see that again. I write a song, I'm moved when I think of the song. I'm no longer moved after I've applied the light of intellect and technique in order to do it. I don't get to be moved by that song anymore. On TV, we see a you know made-for-TV musician who like feels weepy playing a song about something he remembers. That is not my experience. My experience is that I feel it, and then I have to go with no oxygen for the longest time and keep that idea alive, and then other people get to enjoy it. Meanwhile, if someone else bottled the stars for me, I get to live that moment twice because I only lived it once before – now I live it twice. And I just think that that, that that the artists are the are the ones that see it and then bottle it. And everyone sees a different thing. If you see spaces out of out of lumber, you you build houses. And if you see, you know, a, a clean cut or a crazy man with a haircut, then you cut hair. And for me, you know, I hear little melodies. You know, some people see dead people. Whatever it is that you see, that's and that's what. I feel that the dream was about. And when I identified that in the book, I realized I had a title.
0: Yeah. So coming full circle just with us, um, we're sitting here in this container of good life projects. So if I offer up this phrase to live a good life, what comes Mm. up?
1: I think give just enough attention to yourself. amidst all your other projects and ambitions. The world we, we live in, I think just taking... 20 minutes, even a day for yourself. That's all. That's, and, and this is, you know, I'm going to be that guy. That's what trans, uh, uh meditation did for me was made me realize that if I didn't water myself just a little bit, uh, that, uh, that I couldn't enjoy any of the things that I was winning. You can win all you need to, but it's really hard to get up in the morning and say, Today I'm gonna to give myself in the middle of traffic, in the middle of all the things that are in the middle of feeling sorry for myself, in the middle of high fiving myself for the song I just wrote, whatever. If I don't give myself just a little bit of time and take care of myself, there's there's nothing that can be done. So I would I would put that in the mix, among other things.
0: Great. Thank you. Right on